Hello, welcome to LibriVox's New Releases Podcast. I'm Alan Drake, your host for this month. It's such a beautiful day today that I thought I'd just sit out here and share with you some of the new releases for the second half of July 2007. The New Releases Podcasts uh, bring you audio samples from our growing catalog. LibriVox provides free audiobooks from the public domain. You'll get a feel for our new releases of this month. They're in fiction, non-fiction, plays, short stories, poetry, and audiobooks in other languages. LibriVox recordings are very easy to find. You simply have to go to LibriVox.org and click on the LibriVox catalog button. As of today, LibriVox has over... 747 audiobooks available for free download 24 hours a day. Well, before we go on to listen to a few samples of recent audio fiction, here are some other newly released works. These are novels and short prose works. We have several new collections of tales, including the Mystery Island by Jules Verne, and Tales of Terror and Mystery by Arthur Conan Doyle. And also, thank goodness, some not-so-frightening tales written especially for children. The Junior Classics, Volume 1, Fairy and Wonder Tales by William Patton. Excellent. And The Tale of Peter Mink by Arthur Scott Bailey. Let's see. The uh, Newark Evening News once described Bailey's writings in this way. Mr. Bailey centered all his plots in the animal, bird, and insect worlds, weaving natural history into the stories in a way that won educators' approval without arousing the suspicion of his young readers. He made it a habit to never write down to children and frequently use words beyond the average juvenile vocabulary, believing that youngsters respond to the stimulus of the unfamiliar. Well, we also have a good sampling of classic literature, perfect for summer listening in the backyard, like here, or on the beach. Lady Susan by Jane Austen, A Room with a View by E.M. Forster, Main Street by Sinclair Lewis, Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Here are two samples of new fiction for you. First, Something New by P.G. Woodhouse, or Wodehouse if you prefer, followed by The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Now let's see if I can get my CD player. Sit back and relax. (laughs) 
In Something New, his first tale set at Blanding's Castle, P.G. Woodhouse is at his comical best. The Earl of Emsworth's son is engaged to the daughter of American millionaire and noted scarab collector J. Preston Peters. When the absent-minded Earl wanders off with the pride of his collection, Peters offers a large reward to the person who can get it back for him without causing a scandal. Hack writers Joan Valentine and Ash Marson each decide to try for the money. Disguised as a lady's maid and a valet, they accompany the Peterses to Blandings, where the purloined scarab takes pride of place in Emsworth's private museum. Recovery of the scarab seems like child's play, until the Earl's private secretary, the efficient Baxter, becomes suspicious. With Woodhouse's talent for creating characters and situations, combined with his careful use of just the right words to strike the funny bone, this novel is a hilarious treat. This reading is a solo project read by Deborah Lynn in northern Lower Michigan. Excerpt from Chapter 3 I have found a curious object in my pocket, Baxter. I was wondering how it got there. He handed the thing to his secretary. Rupert Baxter's eyes lit up with sudden enthusiasm. He gasped. Magnificent, he cried. Superb. Lord Emsworth looked at him inquiringly. It is a scarab, Lord Emsworth, and unless I am mistaken, and I think I may claim to be something of an expert, a Cheops of the Fourth Dynasty. Wonderful addition to your museum. Is it? By gad, you don't say so, Baxter. It is indeed. If it is not a rude question, how much did you give for it, Lord Emsworth? It must have been the gem of somebody's collection. Was there a sale at Christie's this afternoon? Lord Emsworth shook his head. I did not get it at Christie's, for I recollect that I had an important engagement which prevented my going to Christie's. To be sure, yes, I had promised to call on Mr. Peters and examine his collection of— Now, I wonder what it was that Mr. Peters said he collected. Mr. Peters is one of the best-known living collectors of scarabs. Scarabs. You are quite right, Baxter. Now that I recall the episode, this is a scarab, and Mr. Peters gave it to me. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain It's summertime, and the living is easy. You know you're too lazy to pull out a book and read it, aren't you? Well, you don't have to. I'm announcing the availability of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. That's me. Newly read by Mark Smith a LibriVox reader. You can get it on the LibriVox catalog. Come join me and Jim, that's me, as we float down the Mississippi River and have a good old time, escaping trouble, getting out of danger, getting into trouble, getting into danger. Boy, are we having an adventure or what? You know your high school English teacher told you to read this book. Well, now you don't have to. We'll read it to you. I don't think you'll mind it at all. What do you think, Jim? I think that's right, Huck. I think everybody ought to come join us. We have a good old time, and <laughs> I just have to laugh every time I think about how old Mark Twain wrote up our adventures. They were something funny. So y'all come down now, find us on the web, and download our book. We'll be seeing you. 
You don't know about me without you've read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. But that ain't no matter. That book was made by Mr. Mark Twain, and he told the truth mainly. There was things which he stretched, but mainly he told the truth. That is nothing. I never seen anybody but lied one time or another, without it was Aunt Polly or the widow, or maybe Mary. Aunt Polly, Tom's Aunt Polly she is, and Mary and the widow Douglas is all told about in that book, which is mostly a true book, with some stretchers, as I said before. Now the way that book winds up is this. Tom and me found the money that the robbers hid in the cave, and it made us rich. We got six thousand dollars apiece, all gold. It was an awful sight of money when it was piled up. Well, Judge Thatcher, he took it and put it out at interest, and it fetched us a dollar a day apiece, all the year round. More than a body could tell what to do with. And here's another one. A sample from Just David by Eleanor H. Porter, as read by Mary Anderson. Hello, this is Mary Anderson, the reader of Just David, a book by Eleanor H. Porter, the same author who wrote Pollyanna. Just David is about David and his father, who set out from their idyllic mountain home, to go to meet family, but en route David's father, who is sick, dies, and David is left stranded in a little farming town. No one can read his father's handwriting on the notes he left for David, and especially not his signature. David doesn't know his last name. A stern farmer and his wife take David in and learn more from him than they realize. David, who counts only the sunny hours of his life, soon touches all the people's lives he meets in his new life, with his beautiful violin music and sunny disposition. Here is an excerpt from Chapter 10, and at that moment he spied the sundial, something he had never seen before. What is it? he cried eagerly, hurrying forward. And yet it looks as if it were meant for something. It is. It is a sundial. It marks the time by the sun. The next instant she found herself staring at the boy in amazement. With unmistakable ease, and with the trained accent of the scholar, he was reading aloud the Latin inscription on the dial. Horus non numero nisi serenus. I count no hours but unclouded ones, he translated. Then slowly, though with confidence, that's pretty. But what does it mean about counting? Why, it means what it says, of course, boy. A sundial counts its hours by the shadow the sun throws, and when there is no sun, there is no shadow. Hence it's only the sunny hours that are counted by the dial, she explained. David's face radiated delight. Oh, but I like that, he exclaimed. You like it? Yes, I should like to be one myself, you know. Well, really, and how, pray? In spite of herself, a faint gleam of interest came into Miss Holbrook's eyes. Why, it would be such fun, he chuckled, to just forget all about the hours when the sun didn't shine, and remember only the nice, pleasant ones. Now, for me, there wouldn't be any hours, really, until after four o'clock, 
except little specks of minutes that I'd get in between when I did see something interesting. And now for a final example of a new release of a novel is A Room with a View by E. M. Forster. This is a solo project read by Kara Schellenberg. I'll give you some background. When Lucy Honeychurch travels to Italy with her cousin, she meets George Emerson, a bohemian and an atheist, who she falls in love with. Upon her return to England, she is forced to choose between the free-spirited George and her more conventional fiancé, Cecil Weiss. The story is both a romance and a critique of English society at the beginning of the 20th century. Here's Kara. Chapter 15 The Disaster Within The Sunday after Miss Bartlett's arrival was a glorious day, like most of the days of that year. In the wheeled, autumn approached, breaking up the green monotony of summer, touching the parks with the grey bloom of mist, the beech-trees with russet, the oak-trees with gold. Up on the heights battalions of black pines witnessed the change, themselves unchangeable. Either country was spanned by a cloudless sky, and in either arose the tinkle of church-bells. The garden of Windy Corner was deserted except for a red book, which lay sunning itself upon the gravel path. From the house came incoherent sounds, as of females preparing for worship. The men say they won't go. Well, I don't blame them. Minnie says, need she go? Tell her no nonsense. Anne, Mary, hook me behind. Dearest Lucia, may I trespass upon you for a pin? for Miss Bartlett had announced that she, at all events, was one for church. On to the non-fiction. Chronicles of Canada, Volume 6, The Great Intendant. The Great Intendant, a Chronicle of Jean Talon in Canada, 1665-1672 is volume six of the chronicles of canada series jean talon worked closely with the lieutenant-general preville de tracy to achieve the surrender of the iroquois in sixteen twenty seven thereby ending the threat that had hung over the colony for twenty years although talon did not join the troops in the field at tracy's request he had a very large share in the success of the french arms through his constant and meticulous care in placing at the disposition of the army everything that was necessary for the war, despite the poverty of the colony, the lack of roads, and the distances. Enacted that thereafter, with the king's permission, all the residents of New France might sell and deliver intoxicating liquor to the Indians willing to trade with them. Reading by Robin Cotter let us take a glance over the colony at the time when Courcelle and Talon landed at Quebec after an ocean journey. There were no fast lines then, of one hundred and seventeen days. In 1665, Canada had only three settled districts, Quebec, Three Rivers, and Ville-Marie or Montreal. Quebec, the chief town, bore the proud title of the capital of New France, 
yet it contained barely 70 houses with about 550 inhabitants. Recording by John Rose. Undoubtedly, Colbert wished to help and strengthen New France, but he seemed to think that Talon's aim was too ambitious. In one of his letters, the intendant had gone the length of submitting a plan for the acquisition of New Netherlands, which had been conquered by the English in 1664. Recording by J. C. Guan. The Great Intendant, a Chronicle of Jean Talon in Canada, 1665 to 1672, by Thomas Chappé. Also available in nonfiction is The Name of France by Henry Van Dyke and Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria by William Westgarth, The Death of Lord Nelson by William Beatty, M.D. Ah, here's one. The Anti-Federalist Papers. Here's a companion to the Federalist Papers that was mentioned in our last podcast. During the period of debate over the ratification of the Constitution, Numerous independent local speeches and articles were published all across the country. Among these were those of Patrick Henry. They argued that the strong national government proposed by the Federalists was a threat to the rights of individuals and that the president would become a king. They objected to the federal court system proposed by the Constitution. This produced a phenomenal body of political writing. The best and most influential of these articles and speeches were gathered by historians into a collection now known as the Anti-Federalist Papers, which, of course, is an allusion to the Federalist Papers. You can now enjoy George Edmondson's History of Holland. This richly detailed book gives us great insights into this fascinating country. It was written as part of a series and uh, was intended to be used by people who wanted to understand the nature of existing political conditions in Holland in the 1920s. As stated in the book's preface, the roots of the present lie deep in the past and the real significance of contemporary events cannot be grasped unless the historical causes which have led to them are known. Well, that makes sense. So, we hear the history of the last four centuries in considerable detail. Well, here's the sample. The title, History of Holland, given to this volume is fully justified by the predominant part which the great maritime province of Holland took in the War of Independence, and throughout the whole of the subsequent history of the Dutch state and people. The only communication that was made was not official, but confidential, and it merely stated that Utrecht was to be erected into an archbishopric with Haarlem, Breda, Hertogenbosch, and Roeremonde as suffragans. The ministry regarded the choice of such Protestant centers as Utrecht and Haarlem with resentment, but were faced with the fait accompli. This strong-handed action of the Roman authorities was made still more offensive by the issuing of a papal allocution, again without any consultation with the Dutch government. 
in which Pius IX described the establishment of the new hierarchy as a means of counteracting in the Netherlands the heresy of Calvin. A wave of fierce indignation swept over Protestant Holland, which united in one camp Orthodox Calvinists, anti-revolutionaries, conservatives and anti-papal liberals. The preachers everywhere inveighed against a ministry which had permitted such an act of aggression on the part of a foreign potentate against the Protestantism of the nation. The expedition had achieved its object and William, greeted as a deliverer, entered the capital at the head of his army. On February 13, 1689, a convention, specially summoned for the purpose, declared that James by his flight vacated the throne, and the crown was offered to William and Mary jointly, the executive power being placed in the hands of the prince. End of sample from History of Holland by George Edmondson Next, here are some of the new releases in poetry. We have short poetry collections 37 and 38. There's the multilingual poetry collection 002. There are several new poems of the week as well. If you go to the LibriVox catalog and search, you can see the details there. And there are two other collections of poetry. The first is A Few Figs from Thistles. It's a collection of 23 poems by Edna St. Vincent Millay. This is a solo project, read entirely by Kristen Hughes. Here's a sample from the collection. The title of the sample is The Philosopher. And what are you, that wanting you I should be kept awake as many nights as there are days, with weeping for your sake? And what are you, that missing you, as many days as crawl, I should be listening to the wind and looking at the wall? I know a man that's a braver man, and twenty men as kind. And what are you, that you should be the one man on my mind? Yet women's ways are witless ways, as any sage will tell. And what am I, that I should love so wisely and so well? And here's another short poem sampling. It's from the African-American collection of poems and essays, as subtitled, An African-American Miscellany. It contains a reading of My Escape from Slavery by Frederick Douglass and a series of poems, including this one, titled I Want to Die While You Love Me, by Georgia Douglas Johnson, read with great feeling by Laverne Henderson. I want to die while you love me, while yet you hold me fair, while laughter lies upon my lips and lights are in my hair. I want to die while you love me and bear to that still bed your kisses turbulent unspent to warm me when I'm dead. I want to die while you love me. Oh, who would care to live till love has nothing more to ask and nothing more to give? I want to die while you love me, and never, never see the glory of this perfect day grow dim or cease to be. Thank you, Laverne. Now on to the religion and philosophy. 
which is perfect for today, sitting out here. The sun is now gone behind the trees, so I'm in the shade, which is very nice. We have the Epistle to the Galatians, which is a book of the New Testament, read by Sam Stinton. It is a letter from Paul of Taurus to a number of early Christian communities in the Roman province of Galatia in central Anatolia. Along with the Epistles to the Romans, it's the most theologically significant of the Pauline epistles, and has been particularly influential in Protestant thought. This would be a good one to listen to. Also, there's a Baha'i work. It's called The Revelation of Baha'u'llah in the sequence of four lessons by Isabella Matilda Davis Brittingham. This is read by Nicholas James Bridgewater. And, luckily, here's a sampling. Hello, LibriVox listeners. Have you ever wondered what is so significant about the times in which we now live? Is there hope for the human race in the future? Why is it that all the world's major religions point to the coming of a promised messianic figure? And who is this personality? Isabella D. Brittingham answers all these questions and more in the Revelation of Baha'u'llah in a sequence of four lessons, read by Nicholas James Bridgewater. Here is a sample of the recording. The world is seeking light. This explains the existence of the many new forms of religious thought which are now developing. So unmistakably has the supreme pen recorded upon all things visible the majestic proofs of the invisible that this planet is but a type of greater things, much of which, owing to man's present imperfection, is yet in cipher. Four hundred years before Christ, Plato said, the visible things are but a blotted copy, a shadow of eternal ideas. Sacred history always repeats itself, and the greater the light, the greater will be made visible the darkness, the greater the truth, the greater the falsehood of the opposer, the more perfect the way into God, the more terrible the doom of the one for whom the way has been opened, but who walketh not therein, and who is of those who are afar. In the presence of this exaltation of the fulfilled covenant in manifestation, the world is asleep. Just so it was nineteen hundred years ago. God's messenger then was slandered and abused, and his foes were those of his own household, for his own received him not, and so it will be in these days. The station of this day is beyond all that which hath ever preceded it. Therefore know its greatness. Surely he hath shone forth from the Orient, and his signs have appeared in the Occident. Awake by the breezes of God! Verily they have blown in the world. Blessed is whoever hath found their fragrance, and is of the assured. And finally, in religion and philosophy for this part of the month, is the King James Version of the Prayer of Manassas. This is read by David Champ. The end of July now sees more audiobooks in languages other than English. We have a completed project read in Danish by Christopher Honsdal, Millionarin's Pilgrimsfard, by Otto Martin Moller. There is also La Contessa di Carolistra by Antonio Grislanzoni, as read by Ricardo. 
and finally, though it's not a foreign language per se, but more a proposed international language, Dr. Esperanto's International Language. Introduction and Complete Grammar by Ludovic Lazarus Zamelhoff. And to give you an idea of what Esperanto is all about, here's a sampling. Hello, LibriVox listeners. Have you ever visited another country and felt discouraged by your lack of ability to communicate with the natives? Have you ever felt frustrated by the need to learn dozens of languages just to get by when traveling around the world? Did you ever study languages in school and wonder why they contain so many irregularities, exceptions, and take such a long time to learn? Is there any way to overcome this language problem which devours so much money, time and effort on the part of individuals, governments and international institutions? Is there any way to communicate with other human beings on a neutral, egalitarian basis using a language that is simple, easy to learn, completely regular and mellifluous? Ludovic Zamenhof studied this problem and provided a comprehensive solution in his first book. Dr. Esperanto's International Language, read by Nicholas James Bridgewater. Here's a sample of the recording. I need not here point out the considerable importance to humanity of an international language, a language unconditionally accepted by everyone, and the common property of the whole world. How much time and labour we spend in learning foreign tongues, and yet when travelling in foreign countries, we are, as a rule, unable to converse with other human beings in their own language. How much time, labour and money are wasted in translating the literary productions of one nation into the language of another, and yet if we rely on translations alone, we can become acquainted with but a tithe of foreign literature. Were there but an international language, all translations would be made into it alone, as into a tongue intelligible to all and works of an international character would be written in it in the first instance. The Chinese wall dividing literatures would disappear, and the works of other nations would be as readily intelligible to us as those of our own authors. Books being the same for everyone, education, ideals, convictions, aims would be the same too, and all nations would be united in a common brotherhood. Caro amico, mi presenta salmi kian visagion vi faros pos la ricevo de mia letero vi rigardos la subscribon kai ekrios chu li perdis la sagion ye kia lingvo li scribis kion signifas la folieto kiun li aldonis al sia letero tranquilliju mia cara Mia saggio, kiel mi almena credas, estas tutte en orto. Mi legis antau kelkai tagoi libreton sub la nomo Lingvo Internazia. La autoro credigas, ke per tiu lingvo oni povas esti comprenata de la tuta mondo. I hope you enjoyed that sample. With a little effort, you may learn to understand what the latter segment meant. That's all for now. 
Thank you. Oh, yes. I mentioned earlier the multilingual poetry collection 002. Well, if you search through the catalog, you'll also find it has an excellent collection of poems in the following languages. Brazilian Portuguese, Chinese, Czech, Dutch, French, German, Scots, Spanish, and Welsh. All this in just one of LibriVox's poetry collections. Well, thank you for listening, and I hope you had a relaxed time sitting out here having iced tea with me in my backyard. I'm sorry you can't hear the ocean out there, but the Atlantic is beautiful today. As of today, LibriVox has over 750 audiobooks available for free download 24 hours a day. To listen to more samples, visit the LibriVox homepage for links to all of our audio feeds. Every LibriVox recording contains the following statement. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. You are always welcome to visit the LibriVox site to download audiobooks and shorter works, to join the forum, and yes, to volunteer. We have hundreds of friendly volunteers all over the world, helping to produce free audiobooks, each volunteering in her own way. See you soon.